Heavenly Father, please open our minds and hearts to receive your message for us today. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. I don't know whether you're like me, but I'm quite intrigued by resistance movements. You know, resistance movements, you know, an an organised effort by a part of the population to resist some government or uh, to withstand an occupying power. Now, when that government or occupying power is a bad or an evil or an unjust one, I guess the idea of resisting it really captures my imagination. And, of course, the resistance movement was a big one in the Second World War. Uh, You often hear me speak of Corrie Ten Boom, Corrie Ten Boom, uh, she was part of the Dutch resistance uh, and she was involved in helping smuggle Jewish people out of Holland, I think, over into England. Many of the great classic movies we may have seen uh, feature the resistance. So if you've seen the movie Casablanca, you know that Victor Laszlo, one of the characters of that, is with the Czech resistance resisting the Nazis. Or The Great Escape, if you've seen the movie The Great Escape, that classic from the 60s, when all the guys get out of prison and they're fleeing over Germany to try and get away, I think it's the Donald Coburn character, finds himself in the part of France near the the Spanish border. He meets some French resistance people in a cafe who sort of save his life and they help usher him over into Spain uh, and and to, to freedom. The resistance movement. Then it occurred to me that there are resistance movements in many of my favourite books as well. So I've read the Harry Potter books and if you've read them or seen the movies you would know that in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix um, that Harry and some of his friends band together to teach themselves how to defend themselves against the dark arts and evil and they form a group called Dumbledore's Army. Now if you know the stories, that was a resistance movement. Or... If you've read the Narnia stories by C.S. Lewis, as I have, think of the second story, Prince Caspian. Do you remember how the prince escapes from the castle of his evil uncle and teams up with undercover dwarves, undercover um, talking animals, undercover trees, I guess you would say, and four children from England, and they fight a resistance movement. They're a resistance movement. They fight against the occupying Telmarine forces who are occupying Narnia at the time. Now, one of the things that the book of 1 Peter highlights is that in fact we, the Christian church, we are a resistance movement. You see, we are an organised group under God seeking to withstand and defeat the occupying powers on this planet who we often hear referred to as we're fighting against the world, the flesh and the devil, the world by which we mean you know, the anti-God forces and structures in this world, uh, the flesh, our old nature or the non-godly nature which people have, and the devil. We're involved in a resistance movement against that. But, as of course we would know if we have any knowledge of resistance movements, the reality is that resistance movements, Christians or otherwise, involve conflict, Conflict results in suffering and that's one of the reasons why we're thinking about this passage this morning. So this morning we're taking a slight detour from our Term 1 series in the book of Job where we've been interacting with the whole area of suffering in some level of depth both here on Sundays and during the week at our small groups. But 1 Peter 5, uh, 5b to 11, which was just read to us, looks at Christian resistance 
and we see that suffering is part of the life of being part of the resistance. Now you would have received the outline uh, when you came in uh, of the sermon on the sermon notes and you can see we're going to think about Christian resistance under two main headings and they are two qualities that those of us in the Christian resistance need to have to be effective resistance operatives. And that is one, humility and two, a readiness to resist. So, first let me give you a bit of context because we're in a new letter today, we're in 1 Peter. Let me tell you a little bit about 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter to Christians who were scattered round what we would refer to today as Western Turkey. And the Christians in Western Turkey at the time were facing opposition for their faith. From what I can gather, it wasn't so much organised government opposition, you know, where the Roman Empire might have come down and executed or imprisoned them at the time, although I think that probably came for some of them a few decades later, I think. But the sort of opposition they were facing were things like um, social ostracism, harassment, verbal abuse and slander. Now, if you had the opportunity to read through the book of 1 Peter in its entirety, you would see this sort of referred to or hinted at on a number of occasions. So in chapter 2, verse 15, it talks about the ignorant talk of foolish people. So there's some ignorant talk going on. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, describes pagans heaping abuse on the Christians because the Christians were no longer involved in the sorts of pagan activities that their pagan friends are still involved with. And... Abuses heaped on them. Chapter 4, verse 14, speaks of being insulted because of the name of Christ. And so this sort of verbal abuse, social opposition or ostracism is in some ways a more extreme version of the sorts of opposition we face here in Australia today. You see, in Australia today, we're not imprisoned for our faith. We're not threatened with uh, you know, execution or anything like that, as Christians are in some countries. But we do face social opposition, you know, verbal abuse from people, whether it be, you know, subtle or more strident. And we can get this opposition sometimes from family, sometimes from friends, sometimes from our communities and the schools, sometimes from the media. So uh, the 1 Peter people, or the people of East, uh, Western Turkey, are facing the sorts of issues which we actually face, but probably ramped up a few notches. So... What does 1 Peter say to those people and us about living as members of the Christian resistance in that context? Well, um, verses uh, 5 to 11 of chapter 5 actually summarise many of the lessons and teachings which, which you actually can get in the book of 1 Peter from beginning to end. And the first thing these verses urge upon Christian resistance fighters is humility. You might think, humility? How does that help? Well, it's referring to here humility to one another. Look at verse 5. It says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. It's picking up the idea also found expressed in a little more detail in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, looking not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
So when it talks about being humble or humility here, it's not say be weak, be grovelling. It's talking about looking to the interests of others, being concerned with the concerns of others, uh, serving others. It's referring to that. It's really referring to the sorts of things that parents habitually do for their children. Now, can you imagine if we as a church treated each other in terms of self-sacrificial service the way we treat our children? Uh, the efforts we put into our kids, how much we're prepared to sacrifice ourselves for our children or grandchildren or whoever. Imagine if we treated others and were humble towards others in that way. Imagine how, how unified we would be and how we would stand together. Now, it's interesting to see how groups react when they're placed under pressure. You know, when the blowtorch is applied to perhaps a workplace or even a sporting team, and things are not going the way that the members of that group would like, it's interesting to see how that group sometimes reacts. Because sometimes groups under pressure will stand together and support each other and be united, which is obviously good, but then sometimes groups where they're under pressure, they start to fight amongst themselves, divisions creep in, there's accusations and blaming. If you've ever watched a game of kids' team sports, not irregularly, you will see a team starting to get beaten, they get a bit put out and they start, you know, blaming each other. Oh, why did you do that? Pass the ball to me. Oh, that's hopeless. Oh, you know, and breaks down. What's the church like under pressure? Do we start to fight amongst ourselves when the pressure is on or do we think, be humble, serve one another, put the other interests of the others even ahead of our own? What happens when we're under pressure? If we want to be good, a good resistance movement, we need to be united, serving, supporting others in good times and when under pressure. The next piece of teaching for a strong Christian resistance movement is that we should not just be humble towards each other, but that we should be humble before God. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. It's talking about here to, of submitting to God, of bowing to his wisdom, of accepting what he sends our way, his providence, in effect saying that God, you are God and I recognise that. But can I say that's something which is often easier said than done because often we don't want God to be God. Uh, we sometimes think that actually we know a little bit better than God as to what should be done in this situation. We want things done our way rather than God's way or we would prefer to take the easier path on occasions rather than perhaps God's path, which can be a little more difficult. You know, often we find ourselves in situations where it's, do I submit to God or do I submit to something else? You know, picture yourself in a situation where a group of people and people are drinking too much and they sort of urge you to sort of fit in. Or picture yourself where you're with a group of people who are bad-mouthing someone and they're sort of urging you to agree with them. Or picture yourself where you're in a situation where everyone is doing something or other which involves breaking the law just a little bit and they want you to fit in with them. And you think, right, I really shouldn't fit in with this, but if I don't, yeah, I'm going to attract a bit of verbal criticism. They might say, oh, you religious extremist or um, you fanatic or worse still, you do-gooder. I mean, you know, you can hear people saying, you do good. You know, what are we going to do? Are we going to submit to God or submit to peer group pressure? Uh, what about if you're at work and uh, there's a promotion opportunity comes up and you think, you know, actually, I'd be quite interested in that job. Uh, I've got the skills for it. 
do you then you know, pray for it and just work hard? Or do you think, I think I better give God some help and sort of manipulate things a bit, perhaps undermine one or two competitors, bad mouth them a bit, sort of talk yourself up? You know, are you going to sort of give God a hand by doing some only mildly underhanded sorts of things? You know, are we going to submit to God or, or whatever else? So the temptation when we're under pressure uh, is not to be humble towards others and it's not to submit or to be humble before God. I often refer to Corrie Ten Boom, as you know. I hope you don't mind me referring to her regularly, but a, a, a few months back I described how this former Christian Dutch resistance fighter who was in a concentration camp in Germany uh, where she was running Bible studies with her sister while atrocities were taking place left, right and centre, she said that there in the concentration camp she felt the temptation to look batten down, look after herself and her sister, in effect to become selfish. And she recognised this and had to confess it and fight against it. And once she'd done that, she was once again an effective part of the Christian resistance movement there again. You see, a strong Christian resistance movement anywhere, in a concentration camp or in Winmalee, we need to be united and humble before God and united with and humble towards other believers as well. Now, if you have have anything particularly in your mind at this point, you might sort of think, well... Can I really trust God or submit to God in this particular situation? Because it's, you know, I'm a little nervous about it. Sometimes we think if we don't take things into our own hands, we may not get what we want in our workplace or in our marriage or in some social scenario we may find ourselves in. Well, if we are worried, God actually gives us a very generous provision to help us in verse 7. See what it says in verse 7. It says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God urges us to cast our anxieties on him. Now, can I say, what a great thing to be able to do. God actually wants us, he invites us to cast our anxieties on him. Why wouldn't we take that opportunity all the time? You see, I often and stupidly, when a problem comes up, I tend to stew on things as I've sometimes said in the past. I mull them over in my mind, I think about them, it annoys me a bit, I work over it a bit more, I stew on it a bit more and that sort of... And I, Often eventually, you know, whether after a few minutes, hours or sometimes days, it will occur to me, look, pray about the jolly thing, Stephen, and I'll pray about it and you know, often the burden is lifted. The situation may not resolve in the way I would have liked but you know, it feels less burdensome <laughs> because... I've cast my anxieties on God. What a wonderful thing to be able to do. And you also may think, well, hold on, if I'm submitting to God and not putting myself first, who's going to look after me? Who cares for us? Well, the passage tells us that God cares for us. Remember it says in that verse, um, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, can I say God does a better job of caring for us than we do ourselves? Uh, But the question is, do we believe it? Because we're so often tempted to take things into our own hands. Will we trust God in difficult decisions and when difficulties strike? Now, I was speaking to a Christian man this week uh, who is now in his 80s and when he had not been long married many decades ago, he was driving in a car with his wife. The car coming towards them skidded across the road. In front of them was a collision and his wife was killed. They'd been married for less than a year. 
This man was rendered unconscious and when he came to in hospital, I, I don't know whether it was a few hours or a few days later, he was informed uh, that his wife had been killed in the accident. The man, as you can imagine, was devastated by grief and even now, I think it's 50 plus years later, as he talked to me about it, uh, there were tears in his eyes. But he said that he cried out to God something along the following lines at that point in the hospital. He said, God, it's your world, you can do as you will. Now, I I just find that semi-extraordinary, that he was able to pray that uh, at that point. You see, he was humble towards God. He cast his care on God and he entrusted himself to God's care the sorts of things that's being urged here. And that's one of the more powerful examples I know of from people I know. Now, this man has gone on to experience 50-plus years of what I would suggest is very fruitful Christian ministry, Christian resistance movement action since then, and he would continue to God's goodness, testify to God's goodness in his life over that period. And I guess his first wife, because he's since remarried, uh, his first wife received an early promotion to heaven. And so I don't think she's going to be overly worried about it really either. But what an incredible display of submitting to God, trusting in God, casting cares on God, knowing that God cares for you. I've been thinking about that a bit this week. Well, um, being humble towards God, trusting him, being humble towards others, serving others is something that the Christian resistant movement needs. But the passage then goes on to talk about something else that the Christian resistance movement needs. And as the name resistance might suggest, is that the Christian resistance movement needs to be, point two, ready to resist. Look at verse 8. It says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. See, be alert, Peter says. We need to be ready and alert to the devil's schemes. You see, whether you realise it or not, we live in an occupied country or a spiritually occupied country. There are spiritual forces around us, the world, the flesh and the devil, who may not like us, who may not like what we stand for, who may not like the things we believe or or which we want to promote. And so we shouldn't, we really shouldn't, we're not a Christian country, if we ever were, we're not now, so we shouldn't be surprised when people criticise us, when people stereotype us, when people misrepresent us or misunderstand us. We need to expect it and we need to be ready for it. It says that the devil is prowling round waiting to pounce. Now, um, I've been to Africa a number of times and I've seen some of the great cats in some of the great game parks. And on one occasion I saw it wasn't a lion, it was a cheetah, which was stalking through the undergrowth and there was a little Thompson's gazelle, which is this little cute little deer type thing, uh, which is sort of frolicking, eating its, chewing on the grass in the, in the, in the grasslands and the plains of, of Kenya where I was at the time. Cheetah, stalking, Thompson's gazelle happily eating, not a care in the world. Well, suddenly, without warning, the cheetah lunged, the gazelle saw it and the race was on. If you want to know what happened, you can ask me afterwards. Uh, But that's the way the devil prowls around. We're just there enjoying ourselves, chewing on our cud and he's waiting for an opportunity to attack. Now, can I say, often life for us can be, we can have prolonged periods of really quite pleasant existence and and, and good life. But we shouldn't, if we're fortunate enough to experience that, become complacent because Satan is waiting to attack. He did that with Job 
as we well know from our series, he'll do it with us. Jesus describes the devil as a murderer and a liar in John chapter 8. And whereas the devil can only do what God allows, sometimes God will allow some fairly extreme things, as, for example, Job experienced, or as, for example, that man I was talking to this week, whose wife was killed in the car accident, experienced as well. So we need to be alert and ready to resist. And I actually think that often the devil prowls around in a slightly different way in Australia. Sometimes he's like a marauding lion waiting to pounce, but I suspect that often his strategy is to smother us more like a giant koala bear in the sense that he sort of puts us to sleep, renders us inactive. Uh, We are anaesthetised by the comforts of our life. Now, you know, often people will sort of say, oh, look, you know, I really can't get to church this week because I've got the gym and I've got to drive my kids to this and I've got to drive my kids to that and I've got a few specialist appointments you know, to go and visit. That was you know, thrown in for the 8 o'clockers. Um, you know, we have all these things to do. I don't have time to get to church. Or, oh, look, I really want to take it easy. I don't have time to read the Bible. I think I'll just put my feet up with a cup of tea. I've had a hard day at work or looking after the kids or the grandkids or whatever it is. Or we might think, oh, look, my faith, it's, it's a private matter and I wouldn't want to impose it on anyone else. You know, all these sorts of thinking can sort of work its way into our minds. Um, We need to resist, I guess, being put to sleep. Now, um, I've spoken, I remember speaking to a couple of Ugandan gentlemen over the years and I remember one who I met who came out to Australia said to me something like, when he considered Uganda and compared it to Australia where he was at the time, why would you ever want to leave here? Yeah, he was really reflecting on the fact that really life is a lot nicer here in many respects than in Uganda. Not in every respect, but in many respects. I remember another Ugandan gentleman who I was speaking to once, wondering, how on earth would you ever do outreach in this country? You see, he'd realised that Australia was so spiritually complacent. You see, in Uganda, if you want to do an outreach, you get a few singers and dancers, you go into the village market square, the bus station, a bit of dancing, a bit of singing, crowd gathers, someone gets up, gives a talk, there's an altar call, often people become Christians, you then follow them up. We went down to the Wimberley shops after this service. You know, a few of us get up and sing and dance. Then one of us gets up and gives a talk. Can you imagine what would happen? We would be viewed with derision and abhorrence and awkwardness. Centre management would be on the phone to the police and they'd be moving us on pretty quickly. I guess what these two African gentlemen have recognised is that life here is good, but life here is spiritually very flat and uninterested amongst many people. We need to be alert and aware of that and resist that form of attack on Satan's behalf or the devil's half. So, we need to remain ready and we need to be ready to resist. Resist the devil. Verse 9. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. I mean, that's what resistance movements do. They need to resist Otherwise, they would be capitulation movements or surrender movements. And, I mean, who wants to be part of one of those? I mean, what a downer. So, when we find ourselves, uh, I guess, facing social marginalisation or ridicule or a non-promotion in a job because of our faith, or if we're in some countries facing an assault or a possible imprisonment or a possible execution, how do we resist? Now, this passage doesn't specifically tell us how to resist, but there are many other passages which do. And a good one is Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 11, where it says, Put on the full armour of God so that you can make your stand against the devil's schemes. And then it goes on to list the armour of God, things like the word of God, 
prayer, the gospel, faith, etc. It seems that resistance involves very much communicating with God, prayer, God's word, and I would suggest the support of other people as well. These are the sorts of weapons we use to resist. I spoke to another man during the week who, as he'd explained it to me, pretty much became a Christian from reading the Bible by himself. He had a Bible, he read it over a few years, he became a Christian, he then started trying to live as a Christian and he said to me that he found that trying to fight the good fight against evil was pretty hard by himself and so it dawned on him that perhaps it would be a good idea to go to church where others could help him to do it. (laughs) You know, that's the point, isn't it? Others, we help each other fight the fight. And it's not, we cannot just be supported by those of us here in Winmalee, but in fact here at Winmalee we are part of a worldwide resistance. I mean, we've, we've got two of our brothers, or four of our brothers and sisters from overseas with us today. And it says in verse 9, believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And I bet if we talk to the Tillmans or, or William or Oscar about opposition to the Christian faith in the Congo, uh, they will be able to tell many similar stories that we could tell, I guess, just with the Congolese spin on it. And so we can be encouraged by the fact that there are Christians around the world resisting, we can be encouraged by their examples, we can be supported by their prayers as they can from ours. Now, if you're a science fiction fan, probably in some context or other, you have heard some alien being, whether it's a Dalek or a Vogon or whatever else, say to one of the characters in the story, resistance is useless. You can see a Dalek saying it in Doctor Who. I think it's the Vogons in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, etc., etc. Resistance is useless. Now, often resistance movements, they don't know how things are going to turn out. So the resistance in the Second World War, they didn't know who was going to win. In the stories, you know, Harry Potter and Narnia, I mean, the author knew who was going to have win, but the characters didn't know who was going to win. But the Bible, in the most important resistance movement, gives us perhaps the world's greatest plot spoiler because the Bible tells us who will win and which resistance movement, whether they will be successful in the end because the scriptures are very clear, is that God will win. The Christian resistance movement will win. You know, Christ has defeated the devil on the cross and that will become blatantly apparent in every aspect of human life on his return. So resistance is not useless no matter how it may feel sometimes, resistance leads to restoration. Verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. You see, our suffering, our resistance is limited in time. It will only ask a little while and eventually we can look forward to eternal glory, the passage says uh, in verse 10. So really it's a case of struggle resist now, glory later. Nice to know yet know what happens at the end. So let me conclude. Here in Winmalee or if we live in one of the neighbouring suburbs, uh, life is pretty or appears pretty pleasant a lot of the time but we should not be blind to the fact that we are still living in occupied territory. We are a Christian resistance movement if we're Christians or we're part of a Christian resistance movement seeking to resist the world, the flesh and the devil. And this is in fact the real most important resistance. And the two characteristics that it urges upon us in this character, in this passage if we're wanting to fight this resistance is to be humble to God and to humble to others and to be ready to resist. But if you want to encapsulate it in one thought, 
I guess the take-home message from this passage this morning for us is to remind ourselves that we are a resistance movement.